Tell your story, build your brand. ArtMediaNorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Now enjoy this conversation with Jen Dashney. All right, Jen, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you being on the podcast, and I would love to find out about your new book. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an exciting uh, thought process to, to be involved in, for sure. That's Definitely. a lot of uncharted territory for me. <laughs> well, that's how we all start, right? <laughs> <laughs> in your childhood, did you enjoy reading and writing? I did. You know, I've, I've always been a songwriter. Um, my parents are songwriters. And I, I think until I was probably eight years old, I didn't realize that not everyone <laughs> was a songwriter. I remember getting invited to a sleepover um, on a Saturday. And I was like, but my band has a gig. Doesn't your band have a gig? Like, <laughs> what? And the little girl's like, what's a gig? And then we're both crying because we don't speak the same language, you know, at that point. But um so, so definitely songs I'd written, and, and I've loved reading um, for a long time. I've always been, I'm a total human sciences nerd. Um, I love people. I want to understand what makes them tick and what motivates us, and, you know, um, and so I've loved reading about other people. So for most of my life as a reader, I read um, nonfiction, biographies, and things like that. And then it was when I was pregnant with my twins— um, something that, you know, none of my other girlfriends that had had kids before me had shared is that when you're pregnant, you can expect to have really vivid and sort of wild dreams, unusual dreams. Um, And I didn't know that. And so I wasn't prepared for it. And I was having these dreams like uh, about my real life, but they'd be so vivid. I'd wake up in the morning, it would take a few minutes to kind of sort fact from fiction. And I called a girlfriend of mine who's a psychotherapist over for coffee, quote unquote, because uh, I was pretty sure I was losing my marbles at that <laughs> point. And she said, no, this is normal. You know, um, also, I don't appreciate being tricked into a free session. No. <laughs> she said, but, you know, you try reading, you know, young adult books, um, more fantasy fiction. And I, and I said, what do you mean? Like Twilight and that kind of thing? She said, yeah. And I said, okay. So I bought Twilight and I ended up, um, and it totally helped. Then I would have these fantastical dreams instead of scary dreams. Um, and, and it kind of helped me develop this love for, for fiction. Nice. Yeah. Took a long time, about 30 <laughs> years to get there. But, <laughs> but you got there. Got there. That's mm-hmm. good. Um, are there any memorable books and, and stories from that time period or songs mm. that you wrote at that time? Oh my gosh. So many. There's a book that I feel like kind of, there's, I guess I have two answers because the answer is yes to both of those questions. There's a book that kind of changed everything for me in terms of fiction. I think when I started reading, especially YA kind of fantasy stuff, I knew it was guilty pleasure and I was just embracing kind of, I was reading them almost ironically, right? Like down my nose at them. <laughs> um, and then I found this book called uh, My Name is Memory by Anne Brashers. And she had written all like the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants books, which I still have not read. Um, although I feel like at this point I would read Anne's grocery list. So I probably will. Uh, you, you know, the premise of this book didn't look that interesting to me, but ultimately it's been my favorite book I've ever read in my life. And it's it's magical realism in such a way that it let me 
take it seriously. It let me feel like an adult and it made me think differently about life and death. And I remember like having to explain this to my husband and saying, like, I, I need you to know that I do understand that this is fiction. However, <laughs> it really did make me think differently. And I started to think, gosh, maybe there's a space for, you know, a little bit of magic that, that maybe could be right behind the veil without, without writing a twilight. Right. You okay. know, yeah. um, so that was a big aha moment for me and just a beautiful book. Highly recommend. It's a quick read. It's in the YA genre, but it's just like ugh, you'll fall in love with it. Um, what time period did that come into your life or did you discover that? Let's see. It's probably been five or six years okay. um, because the boys are eight now. I'm trying to think. Right. <laughs> so it was it was, you know. I was into the, I'd read through all the genres I could find or all sort of the known series I could find, all the Hunger Games and those kinds of things. And so um, I was then starting to branch out and I literally saw it. I just liked the cover. It's real sparkly. Um, And I just thought, "Hmm, maybe, you know, kind of picked it up and put it in the stack by my bed, (laughs) on my bedside table. And uh, it ended up taking it with me on a business trip just because it was so small. I could tuck it in a bag versus the giant book I think I was reading at the time. So, yeah. And then sort of, in the same time frame, when I was pregnant with the twins, I'd been trying to write a song for years. I just couldn't quite put my finger on how to articulate the message. And through the process of starting to write this book, it presented itself to me. So I was able to finish the song um, with the help of Michael Herman, who's my songwriting partner and was a longtime bandmate. We started the Heritage together. Um, We wrote a song called Other Lives. And um, that song has had a great life. It went on to win grand prize in the John Lennon Songwriting Contest. And we won um, an American Songwriting Award for it. So, So it's had some accolades. Um, but ultimately for me, it was, uh, it felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Is that thing? Oh, I could finally get it out. But I feel like it was kind of like taking the cork off of inspiration that lived in that same space Yeah. because I'd been thinking about it for so long, like how thinking about it through from 360 degrees, how do I get at this concept in a way that allows me to be vulnerable, but yet leaves it open to interpretation for the listener. Like, well, you know, and so I thought it to the, you know, to death. And, and so I had so much more to say than I could fit into three minutes. And so the book is also called Other Lives. Um, I'm, I'm still not sure which inspired which, if the song led to the book or the book led to the song. They're, they're definitely, uh, interwoven though. Well, Look forward to hearing both the the song and reading the book. So who are some of your favorite authors, artists, musicians, and songwriters? Let's say that as well. Mm. Oh, my gosh. I could no longer, uh, I could no easier pick a favorite star in the sky, Danny. (laughs) You know, I think um, books, again, it's funny. I've always thought I could never have a favorite song or like a favorite book um, because it just depends on your mood. But I definitely have one of each. So I said I talked about Ann Brasher's and My Name is Memory. I love, I read another book by her recently called The Here and Now. Again, kind of a quick read aimed at that young adult audience. Although it's interesting, side note, young adult is, the main character is usually between 12 and 18. But did you know that 70% of YA readers are adults? I did not know that. So we're writing about young people, but but really we're the audience, you know, so, um, so that was interesting. Anyway, The Here and Now was another just lovely book by her. There were there's some things that she described so visually and so beautifully that I would like take pictures of 
you know, sections of the book because it's just ugh, so beautiful. So she's by far my favorite. So and then, gosh, musicians. My favorite song of all time is Africa by Toto. It's a great mm-hmm. song. It's just yeah. a great song. Yeah. It sort of has everything. It takes you on a journey from a beats per minute standpoint. I, my undergrad was in um, music therapy. So I always think about what it's doing to you from a, a physiological standpoint. Um, great song. Songwriters, for me, it's about um, just authenticity and, and, you know, being really honest. And so, you know, sort of the classic ones like a Joni Mitchell um uh, my dad, Randy Ager, was one of my favorite songwriters of all times. He uh, wrote songs for um, folks like Glenn Campbell. You'll hear a lot of his stuff on the radio, but he was a contract songwriter, so the credit is always to the record label. But um, um, songs like On and On, On and On. Like he that wrote song, that? He wrote that. Oh, my God. Um, he wrote some, some ones that you would hear, and I just thought he had such a, a lovely way, kind of like I was describing in my my effort to write other lives uh, of of making something specific enough to tell the story, but vague enough where, you know, as a listener, you can make it your own. And I think that's kind of the purpose of music is to, to help you through or help you to articulate your own thoughts and feelings and kind of uncover those things. And he was a master at that. Wow. All right. <laughs> that's deep. <laughs> um, it's deep, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, and again, it's not all deep with me. I will say I'm a mother of three. Yes. There's a lot of top 40 happening in my car. <laughs> I was listening to on repeat today. Uh, this is so embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you. I was woke up with it in my head, the song Meet Me in Montana by okay. Marie Osmond. I think it was like a 1970-something. Oh, just such a beautiful. I was texting Rock, Ross Seligman, who's my uh, bandmate now, and uh-huh. saying, Let's, let's cover this. Let's figure this out. Uh, so, yeah, my, my taste is not all deep. <laughs> my sister and brother-in-law went to Vegas to see Donnie and Marie. Uh, she, that was on her bucket list. So she's like, we're going. Yes. So, how do you spell your dad's last name? Egger. E-G-G-E-R. Thank you. And we are recording this live at Kennedy Park today. So if you hear little children crying little and, and, and laughing and having fun, then that's why. In the early years, where did you grow up, and can you share one or two stories from your childhood? (laughs) This could take us all day, Danny. Let me (laughs) see. So I did a count at one point, and I realized I had gone to 24 schools before I graduated high school. So we spent most of my childhood moving, um, average two to three schools per school year. Um, Sometimes I would have a whole year somewhere, and that's where my memories live. Okay. Um, Wow. You know, growing up with songwriter parents, you know, it's just sort of a moving target. My mom always played in bands, um, bluegrass bands, and so um, so did I. You know, Mm -hmm. I was in a little kid's band, would stand on hay bales and, uh, you know, a cowboy dress shirt with a lightning bolt down the front of it, singing my heart out, you know, um, to Texas Blue Bonnets or something. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Um, But, you know, I remember being really shy, and I felt like my mom was the most, you know, like every child does, most embarrassing person alive. And she would say, you know, here's my daughter. She can sing. Sing for them, Jenny. You know, and I'd be (laughs) mortified. Like, I can't. You know, they're looking at me. And so um, I oftentimes think back to those moments and am grateful for them because I think I've, I've grown into uh, an extroverted personality. I work in recruiting as my day job. And I don't think any of that would be true had it not been, you know, for growing up the way I did, I was always the new kid, you know? And so, um, you've got to learn how to sort of find your tribe and connect with people. And And you have to do it quickly. You got to do it quickly. And then you're gone again. 
you know? And so I think it's also uh, uh, valuable to learn how to say goodbye to people, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and especially as a kid, like I remember I was one of those kids who, I, when I was young, I knew it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I remember just thinking like, my little kid mind is not gonna retain this. That's really sad. And so I would start journaling and have a little diary and that ended up, you know, probably now that I think about it being a great gateway into, um, into my passion for writing too. Yeah, mm -hmm. wow. So what were some of the favorite places that you lived and memories from, mm. from that time? Oh my gosh. Well, it's funny. So Portland was a favorite. So I, I lived in the Portland area a couple of times I'm trying to think. So I went to like fifth grade in Beaverton um, at an elementary school called Heighton. And then um, we moved away a couple, you know, moved around a bunch and then came back and I did part of a year of middle school in Beaverton. Um, we had family here, so it was an easy kind of pass through for my mom. And so, and then there were some friends there that I remembered from fifth grade. So it was the first time in my life that I got to see kids that you had that, already known that were older, <laughs> yeah, right? Like okay. I remember looking at other kids that had been friends since like kindergarten and being so like mesmerized by, it. I couldn't even imagine that concept of right. like, what would that even be like to know someone for more than uh, six months, you know? And so, um, and then, so that, you know, for me, when it was time for me to get to choose, I came to Portland, um, in between my sophomore and junior year of high school, I realized high school credits don't transfer like mm. that. You know, I saw my guidance counselor and she said, you know, at this rate, honey, you're going to be in high school till you're 30. Wow. <laughs> and I went, okay. So I did part of my sophomore year at Clackamas Community College to make up for some lost credits. Um, and then I, there was a school that I'd seen a flyer about when I was going to middle school mm -hmm. in Beaverton. They were opening up this art school called Arts and Communication, a Magnet Academy for Visual Arts. And I was a painter um, in my youth. I've just been, I'm a Renaissance person, I think. But I think as I've grown up, I've had to, you know, cut ties with some of those sure. <laughs> hobbies. It's only so many hours in well. the day. I was never a good painter, okay? Let's be honest. But I loved it. And so um, I really wanted to go to that school. And so we were living in Seattle at the time in the Seattle area. And I... Um, my uncle, my mom's eldest brother, was in Beaverton, and he had always said, if you ever need a place to live or stay, you know, you can always come here. And I think he said that because he didn't think I'd ever really take him up on it. And so <laughs> I got myself an interview to that school, and I had to do a um, portfolio and an essay and um, an interview. And so I came down and showed up on his doorstep, and I said, hey, is it cool if I, you know, live here now? Uh, and he said, sure babe you know i'm sure thinking i'd be gone in a week and i stayed there for three years wow <laughs> so, so i finished high school here and met my husband here he went to my high school um he was a year older than me and so um that's a whole nother story for another day it took me 13 years to realize he was my person so uh. um yeah, so it's been a it's been a wild ride, but Portland's definitely I, I think of it as my hometown, definitely where I wanted to build the proverbial white picket fence. I think in the long run, um, but I also have a lot of fond memories from the South. Um, like living in Florida was such a unique experience. Um, you've heard the term "it's raining cats and dogs." Mm -hmm. My mom used to say, it's raining fish and frogs. We <laughs> lived um, just down from a pond and little twisters would pop up now and then and, and stop at the pond and bring some friends to our yard and it literally would rain <laughs> fish and frogs. I've heard about that. Something That's... I'll never forget. Yeah, that would be wild. <laughs> yeah, tropical rain, or I'd be walking home from school and it would start pouring down rain. So you cross the street 
it's not raining over there. (laughs) (laughs) It's like if you don't like the Starbucks on on your side of the road in Seattle, you just walk across the street to the other Starbucks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What are some challenges you've faced as a writer? Oh, gosh, self-doubt is the biggest one. You know, I think the whole time I just kept thinking I'm not a novelist. You know, I'm a songwriter. I write things that are three minutes long, not (laughs) 80,000 words long. So when I finished the book, it was time to send queries out to publishers and agents and things. And I had a couple friends who'd published books that I'd gone through the process that I asked for advice. And so I sent out all my query letters and I got just sort of a parade of rejection. And I don't know why I thought it was different than than the music world, right? Because um, I've been told no my whole life. That never stopped me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, I'm not for everybody. I can live with that. but, but for some reason, I let it stop me. And so I did. I got a lot of rejections. I got a few uh, just no replies at all. And then I had a couple of publishers say, we're not accepting submissions in the, the young adult genre right now, which I assumed was a polite way of saying no. And I just left it there. I said, OK, that's OK. This was an awesome experience. I traveled for the book. I did. You know, it was just such an awesome creative outlet to figure out how to write a novel and, and get it to completion. And so um, I just kind of chalked it up as that. It was a great experience. No regrets. Moving on. And so that was the great mistake. I just I didn't see it that way. And so when I got a reply to an email that I sent in 2013, this October, saying, hey, we're now accepting submissions if you want to submit your manuscripts. Uh, I was pretty blown away. It was like, oh my gosh, they meant it. So how many years was that? Five years. Five years later. And honestly, Danny, if they had not, I I still wouldn't have published the thing. Because I just thought, okay, I wasn't very good at that. Oh, well. (laughs) Right, and you were moving on. And I just, and then, you know, it's funny because now I've been building my social media following as I'm supposed to do, you know, as my publisher's telling me to do. And I get a lot of questions from aspiring authors that are asking, oh, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And I'm very honest. Right. Like, honestly, (laughs) for me, it was luck. So don't don't do what I did. You know, don't let no be the thing that stops you. Um, Or not right now, in my case. Right. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes it actually just means not right now. Sometimes, yeah. As a parent, wife, and musician, how do you make time to write? That's a really good question. I get that question a lot. I think on paper it looks like I don't sleep at night, um, which is kind of true, (laughs) (laughs) I guess to a certain extent. But I I balance things. You know, I'm, I'm usually not active with the band when I'm working on a different creative outlet. Things kind of come and go. Um, but the writing thing is not easy. So most of the book I wrote when I was pregnant and on maternity leave with the twins. I was on bed rest for quite some time. And as I shared, I was um, reading a lot of young adult and I and I'd run out of stuff to read. And so I went to a bookstore in Beaverton. <laughs> And uh, it's not a very flattering story I'm about to tell. Um, And, you know, again, I was very new to the genre. I didn't know much about, but I knew the kinds of things that I wanted to to read. And so I walked up to the information thing and there was a woman there uh, reading her book. And I, you know, excused myself and asked her, you know, which aisle, just point me to the aisle that I should walk down. If I want something that's like a twilight meets like a night circus meets like discovery of witches. And she looked at me like I was the stupidest woman ever to roam the face of the earth. I mean, I, that look still haunts me. I'm telling you what, she just looked at me like, oh, you're one of those. You're one of those twy mom idiots, right? And I'm like, oh, my God. She goes, first of all, those are three different aisles. That one's fiction. This one's horror. That one's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
Okay. Okay. Well, can you, and I, I just tried to find different ways to ask the question. And I, finally, I'm starting to tell her a story. I'm like, okay, let's say there's this young woman and she's on a road trip and it's a journey of self-discovery. But of course she finds an epic love along the way. And maybe there's like some witches or just a little bit of like whimsy and magic right below the veil. So as an adult woman, I can take it seriously. Where, what aisle is that? And instead of answering my question, she turned back to her book and just started reading. Oh, rude. I was so, I was so pissed. I mean, I'm thinking like, why do you work here? Obviously you don't like people. Uh, Certainly not me. And so I did, I browsed around a little bit, but I started thinking more about that story and I left and I just thought, okay, I'm going to go write some of this down because I might be onto something. And so I got home from the bookstore. In my one hour a day, I was allowed to be off bed rest. So I had wasted it on this meanie. And then I'm back home and I just started writing. And I got, I don't know, maybe 10,000 words in. And I could see the whole story unfolding in my mind. Like I could picture the whole thing. And I was like, this is so crazy. I've never had this moment before. I'm a really visual thinker. So Mm -hmm. that piece of it made sense. But I'm like, I have a whole book inside my head. This is crazy. And I just kept writing and I got maybe to the halfway point. And I, and I was like, I think I'm going to like, this is a novel that I'm writing. Like I might get to the end of this and I don't have any idea what I'm doing. So I went back to that bookstore, didn't talk to anyone. Um, <laughs> and I found a magazine on, um, on, on literally like how to write novels or publishing. Um, and the very first thing I read in that magazine said someone's advice was you should never sit down to write because it's time or because you're supposed to, or it's an obligation of some kind. Wait until the story is just trying to get out mm-hmm. and you, all you have to do is sit down and write it. And I was like, that's exactly what happened. So, so, okay. I accidentally did the thing you're supposed (laughs) to do. Cool. And so, (laughs) so I did, I just finished it and kept kind of coaching myself through the process. So it was definitely a learn as you go journey. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that story just came to me because of one mean person. I don't know if it would have happened otherwise. Well, that's that's the fortuitous (laughs) part about that. You just never know. (laughs) Did you, did you create it in three acts? Uh, structure, like story structure, like beginning, middle, end, or was it, did it just come out and then (laughs) editing took care of the sort of form of it? You know, it's interesting because I kind of went backwards in the term in terms of um, creating an outline or storyboard. I almost like wrote the first draft and then and then looked at it in my rear view to make sure it did have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But okay. it kind of came out organically in the right shape. Okay. From an editing standpoint, I really just had to go back through and uh, like fact check myself. Like if I said it's Tuesday and two days from now it's Friday, you know, okay, you've got to change that or the dates or the weather. I mean, those little sort of things as you're writing. The problem with writing a novel that I never had with songwriting is that you end up with these, um, you got to stop at some point and go do something else. And then again, for me, and I write songs the same way. This is just the type of creator that I am. I never sit down and write or, you know, play music because it's time or because I'm supposed to. I do it when the creativity strikes. So sometimes weeks would go by. And I wouldn't have a fresh thought or I wouldn't feel compelled to sit down and write. And by the time I did, I don't remember those little nuances because I baby brain massively at that point. (laughs) Kills your short term memory. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that was really the that was the only clunky part, I think, is just kind of getting back into picking up where you left off. Yeah. Did you jot things down like here and there? Did you have different Mm -hmm. places that you would track your ideas? 
Yeah, definitely. I did um, mostly digital things like on my phone. I've got the little notes application that talks to the one on my Mac, you know, okay, too, so sure, I could sure. be in Target and have a little idea and then pull it up on my computer later. I did that a lot. I'd be writing something and think, ooh, and if she meets this person, then she's going to see him again over here or, or, you know, things would start to click and I would leave myself a trail of breadcrumbs. Okay, almost. nice. Yeah, <laughs> so you could see how that tied together. Yeah. I like it. What notes app is that that you use? Is it an app or a... It is, but it's so basic. It's just the one that comes standard on your iPhone. And okay. It's just literally called Notes. How do you get that? To, oh, <laughs> is it Mac? So you have a Mac and an iPhone. You yep. don't have any PCs. That's how it works. That's, okay. Yeah. 11 yeah. years at Apple, I'm telling you what. I'm never going back to PC. <laughs> it's just too nice. No viruses. And for creative things, I feel like all the software I want is yeah. made for it. It's so. made for creative people, for yep. sure. Yes. Yep. What are some tips that you could give aspiring authors, writers, and artists? I feel like there's been little nuggets of that throughout the the conversation so far. But I mean, definitely just to reiterate, I think being authentic is the most important thing. And I think anything in life, whether it's choosing a job or choosing a spouse um, or creating should should come with ease. You know, the easiest decision I ever made was to marry Eric. It was so simple. And it made me laugh because I remember agonizing over, you know, relationships in the past and making lists and all these, you know, get in your head about it. And when the right thing comes along, you just laugh and you realize, oh, my gosh, this is how it's supposed to feel. Oh, right. This is that feeling that people describe. And I think you don't know until you know. But if you can learn to listen to that inner voice and really trust your gut, you're going to make your best art. And so often I hear people say, oh, I just have to finish this. Mm -hmm. And like, "Mm -mm, there's no have to in art. Right. You know, and I think for me, I, uh, you know, I get the question a lot too, you know, how come you're not doing music full time or how come you're not doing, you know, writing full time? And for me, I've learned over the years that if I am paid to be creative or I'm supposed to or I need to because I'm dependent on it financially or there's some sort of like, you know, something attached to it, it kills my creativity. And you've seen that from the other side, too, yeah. I think, as a child growing up with the songwriter Absolutely. parents, right? Yeah, and definitely I did I did do music full-time for a little while, and in that time period, I killed all of my personal relationships. I found out that I'm like a, a neurotic workaholic, which I didn't realize working for somebody else. When you're working for somebody else, there's this little bit, there's this tiny chip on your shoulder that for me is very necessary, where I will go, no, this is my time. You know, I've already given you my this many hours. I'm going to take this time and I'm going to write. Or, you know, if I don't have that push and pull, I will work around the clock. I didn't know that until I tried it. But the craziest thing was I didn't write a song for six months. Mm. I mean, it killed my creativity, literally, to have to make music. Yeah. And I, I learned a really important lesson through that. And again, I think the same thing goes, like picking a job or, you know, deciding which friends to keep. None of these things should be uh, things to agonize over. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's very wise. Do you have a routine that helps you do your best work as far as a writer? Yeah, um, and I guess I wouldn't have wouldn't have thought about that, but I, I definitely do. And for me, it's about creating space. Um, and I think that's the most important thing as a creative. We don't have much space in our lives that's not on the calendar. And for me, blank space is where creativity is born. And so I have to create it and that's my routine. So um, typically it'll be like in the car, um, is a great place in the shower. I know some of these things sound benign, but I think it's about intention. You know, I'm going to intentionally let my mind wander into this space during this time. And so, because again, I don't sit down to create anything, whether it's painting or writing or songs, 
until I already have it. It's in my head. I just have to put it down. Um, and so a lot of my time writing is spent in my head, honestly, just thinking about before it. Before you put it down. Picturing it. Yeah. Wow. Kind of poking holes in it um, before I ever sit down to write. So by the time I'm ready to write, I, it's literally that feeling I described as, you know, I, I cannot wait. I'm just so excited to, to get it out. Yeah. My question was originally, did the place and time that you grew up uh, affect the way that you learn? But let's say places, because <laughs> that's way more accurate. Totally. And I think, you know, again, just having to be new all the time, learning. And I think this is where my love of human science came about, just seeing so many different people in so many different scenarios and how they react and how they interact and how they react to me. You know, you do, you learn so much about people and all of that is incredible material. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what mentors did you have along the way that come to mind? I would say I have a lot of mentors. I, I call it my personal board of directors. And and I feel like there's somebody there or multiple people there for different things. My 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 personality is very um yeah, I guess multifaceted. So if it's about work, you know, or my career, I have a, an incredible mentor um, named Corey, who is someone I, I call her my spirit animal. I look up to her. I'm, uh, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a cancer survivor. I did not know that. Um, I had cancer at 22, cervical cancer, and I didn't have it for very long. Um, I knew about it for uh, 11 days before my first surgery, which I thought got it. I didn't find out that it that it didn't get it until like three days before my second surgery. So when I think about kind of the emotional impact of cancer, it just it never has felt like I'm cancery enough for the survivors club. I don't know if this makes sense, but um, but this gal, uh, my mentor at work, is a survivor as well and has been a mentor to me in so many ways, but career, but also just mentoring me through my own survivorship, yeah. if you will, of like, maybe, maybe you don't, you know, you didn't have a mastectomy or, you know, you're not, not in chronic pain, but there are other people that have your story and there's very real PTSD associated with it. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to it that I think I thought I was being brave by just saying like, this is not a part of my identity. I'm not going to identify as a cancer survivor. I don't want to give it that power. Mm. You know, there's so much more to me than that. And what she helped me to see was that that was putting it actually in a place of fear. Like mm. I'm afraid to let this be a part of my story and because it could get bigger. And it was a really, you know, again, interesting epiphany, highly, highly recommend having mentors in general. Um, especially a lot of times when you think it's for one thing, it will be for something else. Um, but definitely for creative things, it's always been my mom. I mean, she's an incredible songwriter in her own right. Um, one of my favorite voices um, and has always been, you know, she taught me how to sing harmonies. She taught me, um, you know, the importance of singing your truth. I mean, she's really been that guide for me. And then, and then also just watching her, sometimes it's, you know, to emulate and sometimes it's a cautionary tale and it's always beneficial. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, she's really been that biggest influence for me. That's awesome. Well, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were 22, that's when you were diagnosed. Yeah. You were also young. So Kamina also. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, her story, that's how we met her. Um, I had a, a company called Theory Trick for a long time, about 12 years, that was a not-for-profit. Um, we started it originally as a collective in order to elevate bands. I've always had this, like, and I'm sure everybody feels this way, especially musicians. It's like you can turn on the radio and you know when somebody's 
not telling the truth. Right. You can feel the difference if you let yourself. And that's always really bothered me that like really terrible bands, but maybe they've got incredible business savvy, have risen to the top. And then you'll go into like the seediest dive bar and there's like two people there and hear the best band you've ever heard. <laughs> and I just couldn't like let that keep happening. Um, I grew up in the music business. I had a front row seat to the music business. And so I felt like I understood the business side of it really well. And that was a, a something I could share with these bands that just, they, they kept thinking they're going to get discovered and Kelly's Olympian, you know, or something. I'm like, Oh honey, let me help you. You know? <laughs> and so we started this um, collective and I, and I grabbed people like Lisa Lapine at the time, who was our band manager, Trevor Rasmussen, um, Scott Fisher. We had a music video person, a photographer. We got kind of all these juggernauts together in a collective. And once a quarter we would vote on a couple of bands and then all of us would agree to either work at a deeply discounted rate or for free for that band or those bands in order to help elevate them, you know, in their own right. And so, um, that over time evolved, we would get asked to do a lot of events. And so I built an events team and I had a gal named Melissa Wylant driving that, um, work. And that ended up turning into kind of the biggest thing. It had a kind of a life of its own. So as some of the music stuff kind of organically farmed out into other places, um, that's the piece that we kind of kept going. And we met Kamina when she was trying to put on a benefit concert for, um, for her own, you know, medical bills going through the process. And so we met her, fell in love with her, um, and kept her in our family. <laughs> I, I played at one of those concerts. Yeah. I don't know if it was the same one, but that, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. did like a bazaar. That was really fun. Um, yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. In your opinion, what are some of the best ways someone can learn the skills that you've cultivated over the years? Hmm. I know there's a lot of them, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I feel like people people will say things that I don't deserve to have uh, as opinions about me. Like, oh, are you just good at everything? Or um, it's not what it's about at all. And honestly, I credit it to having to face my own mortality at such an early age. You know, I learned at 22 that life is incredibly fragile and volatile and it is short and not guaranteed and not fair and that was really important for me to digest and I did so in a in a very special way and I think cancer does that for some and for others it doesn't and you know it could be something else but I think you you have this moment where that light bulb turns on I think it happens for everybody at some point in your life I think I was really lucky to have that happen at 22 because it did it shaped the way that I, I live, you know, I don't, if I have an idea, I don't ever, ever wait. You just execute. I, I try. You make it happen. I don't ever put anything off. I am like the, the extreme opposite of a procrastinator. I just give it a try. And then I always will offer to share. And maybe it's bad and maybe it's good. And, you know, um, when I was writing the book, I, I had a group on Facebook called Super Readers. And it was 30 beta readers that read my crappy first draft <laughs> and gave great feedback. And, you know, I think of uh, I, I, I think it's important not to have ego in art. And I think that's always been a strength for me, too. I, it's OK if you don't like it. It's OK if you do. I'll probably be more uncomfortable if you do. <laughs> actually. Sure. Um, but I'm willing to put it out there because what if it helps somebody that, you know, wants to do the same thing? <laughs> you know, I just think, yeah. So I guess for me, it's just always about if I have an idea or if there's something that I'm curious about, I don't wait. I just try. And I think that our own self-doubt is the, the biggest obstacle. I think we are most afraid of our own potential for success, you know? And I think a lot of times we downsell ourselves in order to make others comfortable, you know? And it's just not something I subscribe to. 
I can't. That's really important. That's, that's good. How should people find their passion or start their creative life? Mm, you've got, I mean, that is something only each person can answer, I think, for themselves. But I think, you know, not to be repetitive, but back to what I said earlier about just creating space. I don't think that we give enough value to thinking. And that sounds maybe silly to say it out loud, but thinking is something that we take for granted. It just happens all the time. We don't have to try to. Um, but when you do try to, you might be surprised at what comes out. You know, if you really stopped and let's say you wanted to be an artist, but you don't know what your medium is going to be, you know, maybe you, you, you think about it, you know, you spend some time looking at paintings and walk the art store and look at paint and just see how you feel. You know, you wait for those moments where it feels easy and you feel called to it. I think it's got to be organic and you've got to trust your sort of inner higher knowing. You already know what you want to do. And, and if you're thinking about creating art, that is because you want to create art. And don't be afraid to let yourself. Love that. That's great. How has technology changed the writing process and the creative arts in general for you? Game changer. I think that's a big part of it, too. You asked me earlier how I make time for writing, and I, I think I just kind of danced around that question. <laughs> um, but, you know... <laughs> I think uh, part of it is, you know, there isn't really time. You know, it's funny. I'm going to use this example of this book. Um, it's like 90s relationship propaganda. Uh, he's just not that into you. Do you know about this book? I don't know about it, no. Okay, bear with me. It's this, it's this concept of like if, if, you're, if this partner or this person that you're trying to date really wanted to spend time with you, they would. It's very simple, you know, and you think about your life in that same way. It's like if you really want to write, there's time. Yeah. You know, if you really want to do anything, there's time. And I think when I got this book contract in the mail, I stared at it for like 48 hours because <laughs> most of the writing process, either I had little babies at home, which right. sleep 18 hours a day, or was like on maternity leave or pregnant. I had tons of time. But now to go through this process of publishing a book, it took us five months to, to edit, mostly because of me. <laughs> you know, I looked at that because I thought, gosh, I can't sign this thing and then fail. And I don't have time to write. So it's interesting. Now they're asking me... Uh, sort of coyly if I have done an outline for a second book <laughs> and I'm like Ugh. I have some ideas like yeah. I've been giving it some thought space but I don't have the time yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to you know I, I want to so I'll create the space anyway um, I'm kind of going back and answering your last question so technology is the catalyst honestly for all of it for me because if I couldn't do it uh, if I couldn't do all of this, you know, through technology, I don't think much of it would happen. Quite frankly, from a writing standpoint, everything that I've traded back and forth between my publisher and editing team and typesetting team has been electronically. Um, I'm very visceral. I'm super old school when it comes to reading and writing. I like to have things on paper to edit. I like, I still buy a paper book. I'm like that person on a plane who has like this tiny laptop bag with like three books crammed in it. But, you know, I think for things like, um, music especially. So Michael Herman, my songwriting partner now lives in all the way around the world. He lives in Jordan. Wow. <laughs> His wife works for Mercy Corps. He's, he's been playing with an Egyptian pop star all over the world and having this really great life. And, uh, and you may have noticed that we released a holiday, new holiday single this year. We did that across the world. You know, he, I would record my tracks and send them to him and he would record his tracks and send them back to me. And we, we you know, produced an entire, you know, um, track that way. 
and that's something. I mean, gosh, we would have never been able to do that even ten years ago, really, right. um, with the with the kind of stuff that exists now. So I do feel like even with things like music, where I haven't had as much time in recent years to focus on it, it's giving me those options back. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Are you going to write another book? So I know that you you have ideas. <laughs> I do. It's you know. One of my best friends of all time, Patrick Seeley, he's my brother from another mother. He and I have been talking about doing a children's book for a long time. He's a, a great artist and he's an awesome illustrator. So I had asked him to do a couple of illustrations for my book. So you'll see some maps that Pat drew um, as kind of placeholders throughout the book. It looks like a computer did it. He's so like exact. It's crazy. But I did ask my publisher if they would be interested in hearing the, the children's book idea that Pat and I have. And he, my publishing director, James, was like, uh, let's see how this one does. Like, it was definitely like easy there, tiger, you know, yeah, don't, yeah. uh, don't get too far ahead of yourself. I was like, okay, noted. But then they asked me uh, about a week ago if I had written an outline for a book too. I'm like, okay, so there's, that's gotta be a good sign, right? That they're definitely. starting to think about it. That makes me feel like they think this book's going to sell. And I, they have me for two years on a contract. So any writing I do has to go through this publisher, Okay, which could be a little bit, you know, prohibitive maybe, but I mean, if you look at my timeline, if you know, I got eight years in me to get something from right to publish. It, I think it's possible. And I, I do have ideas. I left the book with not a true cliffhanger because I hate as a reader having a massive cliffhanger, especially if there's not a second book guaranteed. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh. So I left a little what I call a sprinkle of maybe there's more to this story, okay. you know, at the end. So there's space for it. At the end, my character, you know, this whole time in the book, she's being um, it's a bit of a spoiler, little mini spoiler. She's being haunted ultimately. That's all I'll say. So I don't totally spoil it. But I think throughout the whole book, you're thinking it's the spirit, not her necessarily. It's the first time it's ever happened to her. She doesn't believe in the paranormal. So all of this transformation is happening because of the spirit. At the very last part of the book, you realize, oh, he's not the only spirit she can access. And so there's definitely room. Room, yeah, <laughs> you for know? sure. And I have some ideas, especially when I think about the road trip aspect of it. You know, every writer has told me that no matter what you're writing, it's autobiographical. If you think it's not, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> and I, I thought for sure everyone was wrong. This is not autobiographical. <laughs> it's a young adult, you know, magical. It's so autobiographical. When I look at it, I'm like, I see every member of my family in this book. I see places I've been in this book and people I've met along the way. And I've been doing a lot of international travel for my work and so in my mind that's where she goes next she hits Europe okay. and and you know there's a whole a whole bunch of possibilities there so that's great I'd like I to yeah what are your favorite and worst parts about the writing process writing editing my favorite part by far is like the magical stream of consciousness moments that hit not all the time but sometimes and you just like get in that groove and um, you know magic is pouring out of you. It, that's the magic. That's the best part. That's why I do art at all is to get that moment. <laughs> the worst part, absolutely the worst part is editing. It's so tedious because I like to tell the story. I'm a storyteller. I think by nature, I do that at work. I do it in songs. I do it in the book. I want to tell the story. I don't give any craps if the, you know, punctuation's right or if, right. <laughs> you know, if things are invented, you know, how they should be. And so I was really lucky to have a publisher that has kind of an all in-house team. Um, I was looking at having it edited professionally. And the quote that I got was $10,000. Then I found someone cheaper who would do 80,000 words for $8,000. Um, and so I sent her uh, the manuscript and she sent it back to me and said, I needed to edit it first. 
And I was so defeated because I'm like, oh, my God, she needed it to be tidied up because she wanted to edit the copy, not necessarily the syntax. And so I was like, ooh, and I started talking to other editors. And that's kind of the theme. Like, you you have to turn in something kind of tidy. Um, my manuscript was not very tidy. It was tidy in the places that I wasn't in that magic stream of consciousness moment. But if I'm in that moment, I just write. Yeah. I do not care what it looks like. I need to get it out of me mm-hmm. <laughs> before it goes away. Yeah. There's like a sense of urgency to it. And so I thought, uh-oh, my writing style is not going to work for any anybody. Like I'm not going to be able to publish books with the way that I create. And so luckily my publisher, like I said, had a, an editing team and they took it as is. And that's probably why it took us five months to get it tidied up. But we the process, we just sent it back and forth. You know, they would edit it. Then I would go to Kinko's and print it and edit it, go through it myself and then send them back, you know, eight pages of, of notes. And then they would change those things and send it back. And so it was a real tedious process, but it was kind of fun with them. On my own, I honestly probably would have never done it not a fan well it's so much it's just so much to do it's just no fun too I I remember uh, in a German class I was in at Portland State uh, one of our teachers wrote he co-wrote a book Mm. and uh, he had a page in a frame up there with red ink there was significantly more red ink than there was black ink (laughs) on that page and it was just like wow and this was you know it looked like it was ready to go to to go to press but uh Man, that was a lot of red ink. Oh, gosh. And it was intimidating for somebody who thinks about writing. It's just like, because this is somebody who is, you know, obviously like conversant in the language who Hmm. knows what they're trying to get across. And it's tough. And I think there's such a vulnerability to it because these are your words, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of your heart and soul in it. So it's, it's a, a scary moment to even hand over something sloppy that you know isn't as great as it needs to be to someone else. But, but again, I think the back and forth was so magical because, you know, I, there's space. And again, back to this theme of creating space to think about things, you know, to put some distance between me and the manuscript, especially through the first couple of rounds where they would have it for a month, you know, they've got a lot, a lot to do. And so I'm just stewing over it. And then Mm -hmm. when it comes back to me, I'm seeing it with fresh eyes and I kind of don't remember all the nitty gritty details and I'm seeing them again. And so like at one point I cut out like an entire section of the book. I just thought, nope, unnecessary, you know, and that was another thing that I picked up along the way from a book that I checked out about book writing from the library (laughs) of like, you know, once you have your story outline, which as I told you, I had my story outline in the rear view mirror. You, you know your beginning, your middle, your end. What is the story that you're trying to tell? Where does it go? And if this doesn't lead there, then it doesn't need to be there. And that I definitely sense. had a big chunk in there that was more like gratuitous. It was just like something I super wanted to write, but I bet the reader wouldn't really be interested. And so that space let me see that, kind of yeah. my own blind spot, if you will. So I highly, I highly recommend that process of editing. Definitely do a team effort. Good. How does a person who is creative develop the balance of work, life, family, especially being a mom of three? Is it Yeah, three. Yeah. It's a really good question. And I think part of it um, is because I'm a classic Taurus. I'm quite stubborn. The best way to motivate me is to tell me what I can't do. (laughs) And I got a lot of you can't do this when I was pregnant with the twins. Well, now you've got two kids coming. There's no way you can do music now. You know, what are you doing? You're trying to write a book, but you got twins and a job. Like, are you, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, "Hmm, thank (laughs) you. Watch me. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) And mama rolls up her sleeves and gets it done, you know. And again, back to that 
silly analogy I gave about like the he's just not that into you. Like I was that into creating. I was going to make the time for it. But with the twins, I started to think because we had moved back to Portland from um, California and in Southern California, I'd been doing the singer songwriter thing and kind of trying my hand. I made my solo album and, you know, kind of hit some personal musical milestones that I needed to do for my own bucket list and then came back. And and when we were in Portland, I hadn't started doing music or anything yet because I moved back pregnant. But I started to think about my own identity as a woman and as a mother. I know a lot of women, partly I think because I was a little older to have babies, 32 and the twins were born. So I'd seen a lot of others go first. Mm -hmm. And I had seen women who, I'd seen both extremes, right? Like a woman who becomes mom and that's her whole identity and it replaces her former identity. And I knew a handful of women like that, and I was afraid of that. And then on the other side, I see, like, the briefcase mom who's always talking on her phone and who, you know, baby wants to show you his art project, and we don't even look at it. Like, I'd seen kind of both extremes, and I just, I, I did a lot of thinking about, like, my own identity. What's the woman I want, who do, who do I want them to know? You know, what do I want them to see versus stories about who mommy used to be? Mm-hmm. And I've always said that I am a musician. It's not something that I do. It's part of who I am. And if that's true, like I think it is, my kids have to grow up knowing that too. It can't yeah. be something that mommy used to do or it's not not true. And so the boys were like six months old when Michael and I decided to start the Heritage. And it was horrible timing. I did not have time. I was going back to work after maternity leave, traveling, all these things. There was no time. Didn't matter because it was important enough to me to be the woman that I think that I am for my children. And I think that's kind of been the driver of a lot of the things that I do. I think it's really healthy for them to see mama, you know, coming in and out of the house because I've got a business trip. It doesn't mean I love you any less. It just means mama's a whole person. Yeah. You know, um, and I hope you watch this and, and that you become a whole person, too, you know, and that you find your bliss. I want you to watch me seeking happiness so that you learn to do that, too. I think that's so important. I know several people who... uh who don't live that way and it's unfortunate for them and for their kids I think yeah um, and then it's also unfortunate when maybe the child seems like they need a parent who is 100% there for them and that parent can't be because that's not who they are yeah so yeah that's I think that's really well said though I like it. it's tough though I mean you're right because I have three very different children that um, I'm sure would respond to, to individual mm-hmm. kind of parenting styles and and we I wouldn't say it's like a one-size-fits-all approach but it definitely is like you know you guys have joined a life already in progress you got to kind of fall in line yeah. at some point we're not going to redo this whole thing around your whims of you know chicken nuggets for every meal it's just not that's <laughs> not happening um, and i think that's part of it too is again watching so many so many other mamas go before me i would hear them say things that didn't make like logical sense to me right and before i had ever had kids of my own and realized logic's not involved in those uh, <laughs> moments but yeah. like but like i'd hear people say things and i'd repeat it back like did you just hear your because you just said you know like um like oh my baby you know gets up at 4 a.m every day and I'm like huh well a baby can't get up right like you have to get them up so what you said makes no sense what time do you put them to bed 5 p.m well you know you're the boss of that right like you (laughs) like are are you hearing you because it sounds like you sound like the baby's the boss of you baby can't even tell time you know (laughs) and it would just make no sense in my very like logical you know look at it and then of course you know it happens to you and you're like oh right this is not a logic-based conversation this is emotion (laughs) 100% like 
not even necessarily rational, nor does it need to be. Um, and so it was, I think it was a lot harder to do than, than to say, quite frankly. My parenting style is very hard for me. Mm. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. I have to think a lot about as a feminist and as a woman, what kinds of things am I showing them? You know, even as small as like, what are the, my chores around the house? Like, what do I want their perception of gender roles to look like? I mean, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's much easier to just give in. Yeah. Quite frankly. Yeah. You know, um, I would probably make my life a lot easier if I let the kids kind of rule the roost. But one of the things, and then I'll stop going off about this, um, Eric and I saw this super random thing that was so pivotal for us. We were living in LA. Um, I think we were still just engaged at the time. And we saw this like thing on the news. They were interviewing Paula Dean's husband. You know, Paula Dean, that she's a famous chef. She kind of had her heyday in the early 2000s and then, I don't know, put too much butter in something and then everyone hated her for a while and now she's <laughs> back in good graces. But one of the things that she was really famous for was her great marriage. Her and her husband had this like infamously wonderful marriage and um, were still crazy in love and, you know, with their white hair growing old together. And so he was getting interviewed about how do you guys have this great marriage? And he said, it's easy. I just always put her first. And the, um, the newscaster kind of rolled her eyes and said, well, yeah, but until you had kids. And he's like, no, that, no, I just always put her first. And she's like, well, yeah, right. But okay, let me give you, you know, she's trying to poke holes in it. And she's like, okay, your kid falls out of a tree and breaks his arm. What do you do? Well, I make sure Paula's okay. See how she's handling it. And then we address it. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And then he said something along the lines. And of course, my reinterpretation of it was like, you know, they're joining a life already in progress. But that was kind of the way that he put it. And it was so simple. He's like, we already have a thing going. Like they're joining it. They're not redefining it. And I thought, huh, I've never heard that point of view or perspective. And Eric and I decided in that moment, like we were going to try to have that marriage. We were going to try to, you know, always be kind of the home team. Um, not that it's us versus the kids, but it's kind of us against the world, you know? Um, and so, and, and again, I think that was kind of at the foundation of a lot of it is just really trying to create something realistic for our kids. Another example is we've never baby proofed. I don't believe in it. I think you've got to house proof your baby because what happens is you put Charmin on every sharp corner in your house and your kid goes to his friend's house and sticks a fork in a light socket because they don't know about danger. There's no, you know, I think you've got to create kind of safe places for your kids to take risks. You know, we know if we're not keeping a close eye on them, we'll put the gates up because we don't have it super baby proofed. But as long as we can pay attention, it's a free for all. And I think, you know, that just kind of comes back to even the parenting style piece of maybe I've got a guy who, who would like a little different parenting style than what I'm able to provide. But I think that's a realistic snapshot, right? Yeah. in life like well, you're, you're going to have to you're going to have to adjust not everything in life is going to be catered to you unfortunately and so while it's I'm not proud of maybe those parenting moments I do think I'm preparing them for reality mm-hmm. well in Europe they don't put you know fences and gates everywhere that is dangerous they yeah. you know it's it's like the sort of survival of the people who pay attention to I should probably not walk off of this cliff here right? Yeah, and it's such an American thing, and that's another thing international travel has really taught me is just to kind of peek in the lives of others. Yeah. Every time I travel, I never stay like where you're supposed to stay. I'll get like an Airbnb in a neighborhood because I want to see how people live. Like, mm. where do they shop? What's their schedule? What do they do? Like, I gotta know. It's the nerd in me. But um, there was a great documentary called Babies. Did you see this? Mm-mm. It just followed four babies, and they were all from different places in the world. There's like a you know a baby in Africa. There's a San Francisco baby. 
Um, there's the one in Mongolia. And, and you just kind of watch their different ways of raising kids and, and all of the babies are healthy and happy. But I'm sure that each of those parents and cultures believes that this is kind of the way it needs to be done. And you see the San Francisco mom and it was, it was like putting a mirror in front of me, and I really did not like what I saw. I was so that mom in the very beginning. Every book, you know, I was never going to show my kids a gun. They were never going to see anything on TV with a gun. They were never going to hear a gunshot sound. And still somehow, you know, my 18-month-old Xander is like grabbing a spoon and going pew, 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 and pointing it at his brother. I'm like, how do you come out of the womb? And you know <laughs> this intrinsic, like, thing. And, and I'm watching the San Francisco mom who's like, sterilizing her child's life to the point of like it looking cruel quite frankly and silly and then you see the Mongolian mom who she goes out for the day and she ties the baby kind of to a leash to the bedpost and like a yak pokes its head in and checks on the baby once in a while and that baby's fine too you know and, and I was like whoa again two extremes and I think the truth is somewhere in the middle <laughs> you know um, but but I think perspective has been a really great gift for me. When I when I feel like I get too stuck or when I can tell that I might have a blind spot, I, I will try to look for different perspectives. I think the hardest part of the human experience is a lot of times you don't know, though, when you have a blind spot. <laughs> There's uh, my parenting thoughts. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so is creativity or skill more important as an artist? 100% creativity. 100%. I think it comes down to honesty. There are really incredible practitioners that are not creative. You know, mm -hmm. art can be a learned behavior. And, and again, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think like an architect is a behavior driven creator, you know, but I don't think that art in its sort of truest intention can be achieved through skill. It's got to come from a, an organic place. Um, as I said, I loved to paint. I sold terrible paintings. Uh, I was a terrible painter, Danny, let's be honest. <laughs> but I but I loved to paint. And I think that people would buy those paintings because I think you can tell. Yeah, I do. I do. I think there's value in authenticity. That's good. I like that. What are some difficult times you've faced as an artist and in general? I think I'm kind of going through a little bit of it right now. <laughs> so maybe I'll use right now as an example. I think it's, it's I'm in this moment where, like I was telling you, I was like listening to cheesy music in the car and, and thinking like, oh, we've got to cover this. Like I'm definitely in this moment right now where I'm craving music, mm -hmm. but I don't have time. And I think that, you know, if you are, uh, as they say, a Renaissance creator, you have lots of different you know, things that you like to do, if you're like me and you choose to build a career as well and a family as well, you know, the reality is you got to pick and choose. Yeah. And that's hard for me. And yeah. that's the selfish kid in me talking, but I'm being honest. Like, it's just, it's tough for me to say, I don't get to fill my cup today in that way because I, you know, and I should just be grateful I get to do it over here, you know, and, and that's, that's something I totally struggle with. Yeah. Um, I wish that weren't the case, but it's honest. Yeah, I think it's the hardest part is just figuring out how to save it for later when I have those bursts of inspiration that feel like it's got to come out right now. Yeah. Is there a way that you can channel some of that into like uh, starting to write a new song or singing in the car when you're driving or whatever? Uh, for that, sure. Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly that's yeah. exactly the Band-Aid I put on it. Right. I'll sing at the top of my lungs in the car or I'll, you know, write some notes or, you know, now I've got a great voice recorder app on my phone. And so I'll sing if I get a melody line in my head, I'll just like hum it into the thing. So that's it is a really great place to to, like I said before, leave breadcrumbs, you know, for yourself to come back to later. So that that moment isn't lost in time. 
time. Again, I think that's where technology has been such a godsend for me. I can't imagine trying to do my life <laughs> in the that. 80s. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know how people did it, quite frankly. <laughs> just used a cassette recorder instead. <laughs> yeah, right. Or their like notebook in their pocket. I just don't I don't think you could do the things that you can do now. True. I mean, honestly, the travel piece even like I saw, you know, how Facebook does that memories of seven years ago today yeah, kind yeah. of thing. I saw a thing on Facebook go by of me FaceTiming with the twin babies, like on my first business trip back from maternity leave. And and I don't I don't think I would have ever taken a job that has travel or grown my career to the point that I have without technology. Because yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't do it if I couldn't talk to them. That makes sense, yeah. Or see the, those little chubby faces. <laughs> 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 so how have you learned to overcome adversity? Something gets in your way or tries to. <laughs> they call me mama bear at work, Danny. Yeah. When something gets in my way, I tend to get it out of my way. Yeah. My boss told me recently, he said, you are the nicest person I have ever met until you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, there is a stubborn streak in me for sure. But honestly, I again, I don't want to sound like so existential here, but, but I don't, I don't give a bunch of clout to adversity. Yeah. You know, I, I really, it's pretty hard to get me down. Yeah. Um, I tend to see everything as an obstacle that I'm going to learn from or, or as a sign, because again, I, I really believe at my core, I'll always be the first to tell you, I do not know much for sure. But one thing I believe that I do know for sure is that piece of waiting to feel the ease, you know? And so if I feel an obstacle between me and what I'm trying to do, I tend to listen and ask why and peel back the layers of that onion like why is this not why is ease not here mm. is there a different window i should climb in is it a you know is there a different you know let me really create some space to think this through and and kind of feel my way through this because there's probably something to learn here seek first to understand and then yeah. not to be understood first. i'm not a knee-jerk reactor okay. at all when it comes to that kind of thing. That's helpful. I just look at it for a while. If you could only read four books for the next eight years, what would they be? Oh my gosh. Are you kidding? That is tough. Okay. Four books. Okay. Okay. The Brothers K by David James Duncan. It's an oldie, 1992. Oh yeah. He also wrote The River Why. He's an incredible author, but I love The Brothers K because it's like a, a whole life story of this family it just it takes you through so much so when I think about okay in eight years I could totally reread that thing a bunch of times um my name is memory I'm gonna add to that list it's my favorite book I'm not a big rereader and I think it's because I'm so I'm so visual it's like as soon as I start reading it again the whole movie comes back into my head okay, and I'm like sure. oh meh you know <laughs> um which is interesting because I can watch movies a million times, but yeah. it's like books for some reason are tougher. I'm, at least if I put space in between. Let's see. I would say like there's got to be some poetry in there. Probably like Edgar Allan Poe. There's like this. I have a tiny dark side, probably smaller than many people's, <laughs> but it appeals to that little spot in me. Um, just a little bit of... Um, spookiness to the way that he writes poetry that is always always inspires me so I think that would be great to have and then something fluffy um, <laughs> something fluffy yeah Love you know like adjective. I would almost have like li li I mean you're gonna laugh but I would almost literally put like a twilight in there just to have like something corny you know to for when I feel like it 
There mm-hmm. you go. My guilty pleasure book. Yeah, that's, that's a good four. Some variety. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> some variety. I put no biographies in there. It's all fiction. <gasps> See, I'm you becoming can... a fiction reader. So what <laughs> if you did? You. A, you could add a biography. Oh my gosh. Uh, oh, I just I've got Michelle Obama's right now. I'm I I love her so much. She's a inspiration on in heels no but that's the thing i probably wouldn't want to bring a, bi- a biography to reread you okay, know what sure, i mean sure. so yeah i think i think i'm stick final answer all right excellent <laughs> truths remain true whether or not we believe in them is a quote is that a quote from your book it is okay. yeah it's the opening quote um and, and it's just one of those things, again, like I've lear- learned over the years, because you hear so many people with differing opinions on things that are not opinions, right. <laughs> like the shape of the planet, as an example. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it leads me, it just leads me to, to this point, like it doesn't, quite frankly, it doesn't matter what we believe at the end of the day, what's true is still true. And, it, and my main character in other lives uh, doesn't believe in the paranormal. So it takes her a while to kind of figure out what's going on because of her limiting belief system. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I think you sort of did this already, but can you give us a sense of your book, the demographic and style? I think young adult is the... Yeah, it, like young adult is the genre, but it's um, not the targeted reader. So okay, I think that's so an important adults are the targeted take. reader. Really, I think so. And again, I wrote it... You know, for people like me who who want that guilty pleasure and sort of the fast pace, you know, of an easy read, mm-hmm. I even went through in the final round of edits and took out some of my vocabulary and uh, not to say dumbed it down a little bit, just to make sure that it could be that, mm-hmm. right? That it's not, no one's going to have to stop and, and look something up. It's easily digested. I just, it's not that book, right? Yeah. yeah I wanted it to be di- bite-sized. And then, but but I do, you know, I tried to hide the magic in such a way that it, it could feel like, hmm. Maybe could happen. I don't know. Maybe there's something like that going on. I don't know. Uh, I don't know everything. It's possible. I want to leave that for people. That makes sense. So I try to do that. So there's, uh, I think the hardest part, honestly, in creating this world, because it's based on reality, is was not to recycle um, terminology. You know, there's so many things that have already been thought of, invented. Um, for example, in the book, there's something called Witchfire. My editor was fussing with me about wanting that to be two words. And I was like, no, it has. we have to normalize it, like campfire or wildfire. It's got to feel normal, not like a proper noun. It's got to be something that could happen that's always been there. You have to, like, establish it in normalcy in that reality. That's cool. And it's it's harder to do that, I think, in, in, in a way that hasn't already been done. Like, you think of the Harry Potters and all these books that have these magical elements. They've created the names for all these invented things already so yeah. to have a unique point of view I think is is tough and I hope that I do again being a little newer to the genre mm, I hope people will tell me I'm sure but that was yeah so there is a little bit of magic there's kind of a modern day coven that ultimately um saves the day and they see her coming each of the women in the circle as I call it they live in uh, a giant uh, Borough House in Stonington Borough, Connecticut, one of my favorite little pieces of the world. Um, it, it's like the kind of like a Thomas Kincaid painting come to life, wow. like a little like an, a fishing village, you know, um, just jetted out, you know, in the edge of this uh, little town in between like Mystic and I don't know Rhode Island. But they they come together to, to ultimately save the day, and I, I try to make those women again feel real, like real characters and real things are going on. Your daily life is going on um, behind the scenes. So I think I'm hoping that it could be anybody that reads it. Uh, I hope anyone can enjoy it. Nice. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, people will tell you their opinions. They're going to tell us. Yeah. They're going to tell us, Danny. They're just opinions. <laughs> we can't let that rule our lives, right? Right. Can you tell us about your current projects and where you'd like to focus your creative energy as far as a songwriter, writer? You know, I know we've talked about this a bit, but what what bands are you currently playing with? <laughs> I mean, if I could tell you, like, uh, real quick. So my sister worked with this guy when I was kind of first, like, trying to go see musicians in Portland. And I think you might, I might have told you this before, but... So she's like, this guy that I work with is playing, I think it's at a Starbucks on like Barnes Road or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I went to see Groove Yard and you were the singer. Oh my and gosh. I, yeah. And that was forever ago. It was And AJ is one of my favorite people. He's <sighs> such a good guitar player and like the nicest guy. He's the best. He's the godfather of the twins. He's, yes, um, he is my family. I'm Auntie Jenny to all of his kids. <laughs> um, I met him. We were both working at Starbucks. I was 16, and he or he wasn't working there. He would just practice outside. Like, he'd sit there and play his guitar, and he he's super shy, but I had taken it totally the wrong way. Like, I'd made it about me. I think his teenagers were all a little bit more narcissistic, hopefully, than we turn out to be, but um, everything was about me then, I think. Um, but I had decided that he was, like, snobby instead of shy. That's right. where I took it. Yeah. And one day, I was just, like, in a cranky mood and walked by him, and I was like you know, kind of like, you're not that cool. Like I could play guitar too, you know? <laughs> and, um, and he was like, Oh really? That's cool. She would jam together sometime. And I was like, Oh, he's super nice. Okay, sure. Yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> and that started it. And like, we started to build our band and he was more into the like jazz and blues thing. And I'd grown up playing bluegrass. And so I'd been playing music professionally since I'm nine years old. So by then I was like, road weary and tired already at 16 you know I was like oh I gotta try something else and so I wanted to do something really really different and I'd never done jazz and so I thought okay fine so we built this band and and I wrote all the songs but it's funny I often literally all the the whole decade that we played I think I always kind of felt like I was like dressing up for Halloween to be this lady that sings these kinds of songs and has this big band um it was really fun. I mean, we kind of had our 15 minutes of local fame back in our day. Um, we ended up with the 10 piece. We had a big horn section. The band name I still hate so much. It was so <laughs> literal. I got super outvoted. We literally would practice in my uncle. I told you about that I lived with his yard. Oh, wow. And so they thought Groove Yard. And I was just like, oh, my God, so terrible. Still to this day, I cringe. But um, we've actually been talking about doing some kind of a reunion um, for a few years now. Now that um, Jimmy Max is going to come come back to life okay um that uh business jd is moving it bring it back and that we played there like once a month for seven years it was kind of like our our home base um in the original location and jimmy was a huge supporter of us early on um so we've thought about maybe doing something like that so that's maybe on the radar but i've been feeling super creative lately like i definitely have some stuff in my head that i'm ready to get out that is more music based so i'd like to spend some time writing on it's the songs that come out of me these days are suited to the heritage okay. it's just kind of the sound that i make i think it's more that americana it's like it's exactly like my story it's like what if a bluegrass girl then did jazz for a bunch of years and then did singer songwriter for a bunch of years and then came out the other side that's the heritage like that's <laughs> what it sounds like and what's the lineup of the heritage 
We've got, um, so Michael Herman was our founding guitar player. As I told you, he lives in Jordan. So we have Ross Seligman, who's incredible, played in the Janis Joplin Broadway play, super accomplished, was the lead singer of Echo Hellstrom back in the day, if you saw them. So he's so good. It's crazy that we get to have him like in our band at all. And then a guy named Scott Stevens that I've been playing music with since I was nine years old um, is our mandolin player. And then my husband, Eric Longbine, plays dobro. Will Amond is our bassist. He's incredible. Um, and then Ben Landsverk, who's a Yale graduated composer, like crazy musical genius, plays um, uh, most of the time. Um, he'll play cello or he'll play the viola, which is really fun. Kind of a twist on bluegrass instrumentation for me yeah. to do viola instead of fiddle or violin. Um, and we don't have percussion because it's more traditional bluegrass instrumentation with a contemporary sound. Do you ever do bits where uh, everybody's singing around one mic or playing around one mic, or is that not part of your uh, live? It's funny. I've thought about that in the past. It's something I kind of bristle because it, there was a time when like every bluegrass band was doing that to try to emulate like the country gentleman and things like that. Um, we haven't, but I almost wonder if we should, because now there's a few songs, so everybody in the band can sing, mm -hmm. and we've been we've been taking more advantage of that. And I think going forward, I I always hear now songs with them singing too, so I think there's room for it. Mm. That's cool. I'm open to yeah. it. Yeah, because I've only seen that live once, and it was amazing. And it, it wasn't the whole show; it was two songs that way after a regular like full stage everybody plugged in thing it'd be cool to do like old school bluegrass gospel song um that way as like a finale mm -hmm. kind of song yeah. um there was this song that Lori lewis did called home place it was like who will watch the home place this beautiful song that would be so perfect for that i've definitely been thinking about obscure covers that i want to do and that tends to be the gateway to songwriting for me like I'll, a few songs kind of come into the ether and i'll get really inspired by them and want to create something that feels like that mm -hmm. um and i've definitely been like resurfacing stuff um like marie osmond from the 70s you know <laughs> back into my like <laughs> playlist go. these days so def i think the heritage is is something that i again i want to continue to do and i've been kind of full circle thinking lately about my identity as a woman and as a mother, now that we've got Freya in the mix, a daughter is a very different feeling. You yes. know, I, I feel an intense pressure to show her the way that I hope that she builds her life, you know? And, and again, I gotta, I gotta, you know, put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it is amazing. We've talked about this a little, but you know, how kids have their own personalities. I'm yeah. sure your twins even have their own, you know, Oh, if you ever if you ever want to feel humbled, <laughs> get yourself knocked down a peg or two, have a set of twins. I am telling you what, there is never a hum more humbling. It's like you realize how little you have to do with any of it. I mean, there's these two people born in the same minute, two minutes apart for mine, grown up in the exact same environment, same parents, same experiences, so different. And I'll laugh because you'll hear overhear people saying like, oh, your baby's so cute does he have your personality or dad's you know and I just laugh I'm like that's adorable um that you think any of it has to do with you I mean really it's our job to like keep them alive and hopefully teach them a few manners along the way but really they come how they come mm -hmm. yeah Freya already she came out with a vengeance she's like the sweetest but most opinionated child very good communicator you always know exactly where she stands and what she wants wow okay <laughs> so maybe she'll take after me in that category I figure when she hits her teen years we're either going to be 
best friends or rivals and nothing in between. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There may be some of each. And then at some point in time, I think she'll uh, really, really love and appreciate you, even if even if there are some struggles in there. Oh, I hope it's a beautiful ride. It's been neat to see her just kind of disrupting the twin dynamic, too. Yeah. It's good for everybody. She was our missing person, and now it's kind of neat. It's like we're everybody's here and accounted for, and now we can move forward. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are one or two memorable stories from your art career so far, or music, songwriting, writing, however you want to? One of my favorite stories it was kind of a big moment for me. I had... You know, like I said, growing up in the bluegrass world, and um, we there was a bluegrass festival that still goes on actually up in the Tacoma, Seattle area called Wintergrass. It's one of the big ones in the country. And when the first few years of that festival, my mom was a part of the um, board of the Oregon Bluegrass Association, so I got to be like a band aid. You know, and bands would come through. I'd be like their host for the festival, and I got to meet a band called Chesapeake. They are to this day one of my favorite bands of all time, and really did a great job of like messing with things that aren't supposed to be messed with. Bluegrass fans are very traditional, they tend to be, and okay. anything outside of that is a pariah. You, either that or you come and say, hey, we're not traditional, so people can opt out, or they will like get up and leave, I swear. It's crazy. So the Chesapeake came onto the scene in the middle of like the worst of that, I think, um, in the 90s, and they, and you know, Moon Decline, their lead singer, would play a grand piano in a bluegrass set or like they'd whip out drums on a track and people would just lose their minds. So they were really amazing. So I got to be their band aid and, um, and they invited me to sing with them. So I got to sing with them on a stage in front of thousands of people at 16 years old. I was so scared. We had nothing to wear. My mom spent like her last 25 bucks to get me a pair of black Levi's so I could feel good on stage, which I told her someday mama, I'm going to be famous and I'm going to buy you all the jeans you can wear. (laughs) Um, you know, and I keep thinking one of these days, one of these, one of these avenues is going to pay off and we'll be able to keep that promise. But <laughs> I buy our jeans whenever I can. But well, that was good. a big memory for me. It was just such a cool, like once in a lifetime moment. And then another one, I got to, you know, um, go to a festival called uh, Merle Fest. It's like a, even bigger in North Carolina and hang out with um, Bela Fleck and Sam Bush and um, and be backstage and stage side with those bands. Just really cool moments. Um, really good that it happened at an early age too for me. So I could see that celebrities are just people and yeah. they tend to actually have more insecurities than you and I do and more issues. And so I think that was neat to be able to have that celebrity bubble burst for me so young because it made all art feel more accessible. Yeah. You know, that's cool. Um, have yeah. you seen the documentary with Billy Fleck? No. Oh yeah. It's awesome. He's awesome. He's an awesome human being, for sure. He went to Africa, uh, where you know the sort of origin of the banjo, Mm -hmm. and and uh, jammed with like some tribes there and stuff like that. It's so cool. I will look that up. Yeah. It's funny because I did. I've been out of the bluegrass world for so long. I still think of it as home, but I'm super out of the loop. It's time to rediscover it. I think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's definitely not traditional in his playing, though. And that's so cool. There's an album called Strength in Numbers, mm-hmm. and it's a self-titled album by the band of the same name, but it's just a super group, and they got together to make this one epic, life-changing instrumental album, and he's uh, one of them. 
it is incredible. Tony Rice is on that record. Uh, Mark O'Connor's on that record. Um, Sam Bush is playing mandolin on that record. I mean, it's like, it, it's life changing. It literally did make me think that anything is possible musically. That's awesome. <laughs> what would your advice to 16-year-old Jen be if she would listen? She wouldn't listen, Danny. <laughs> she would tell me where to stick it for sure. She would say, don't trust anybody over 30. Um, and that I was old and gross. That's what she would say. But I would tell her, that's okay. I understand how you feel. But what I need you to know is when somebody says no, let it go. <laughs> when somebody says you know, it's not good enough or you're not good enough. Let it go. It, it stopped me for a really long time. And I think, too, just even it's I think this happens for so many young people. But the physical things really stopped me. Like I would think and it's funny, actually, the, a landlord that I had fixed that problem in me. I used to let myself get in my own way so much. And it was mostly about physical things that I look back now and wish that that was what I looked like. You know, at the time, you just think you're disgusting. Like, oh, you know, I gained five pounds. I can't play a show. And it was funny where I had my landlord over. It was when we were talking about starting the heritage before uh, Michael and I had decided for sure to do it. And I was talking to our landlord that we were randomly renting from right here up the street. And I said, yeah, you know, we're talking about getting a band back together, but you know, but I need to lose the baby weight first. And he's an older guy and he just kind of cocks his head and gets his face all screwed up and looks at me and goes, what the hell does that have to do with singing? <laughs> and I, I didn't have an answer. And I was like, huh, that is a really good point. Nothing. Hmm. And I started like, you know, the video in my mind is playing every overweight, amazing singer. And I was like, huh, right. No, that is a really good point. Why have I let that be in my way all these years? Huh? No one cares. And the other, I mean, even everything from like wearing a swimming suit, I'm way more confident three kids out of me in a swimming suit now than I ever was when I should have been wearing a swimming suit because you realize that not nobody cares. They're looking, they're so worried about how they look. They're not looking at you. <laughs> and if they are looking at you, they're going good for her for being confident. <laughs> you know, um, I would tell her all of those things and just tell her to stop making up obstacles that don't exist. That is excellent. Very well put. I think that's good advice for all of us, isn't it? Easy to say, not easy to do. True. <laughs> I would tell 39-year-old me that, too. <laughs> <laughs> How do authors, writers, musicians, and creative artists keep from becoming obsolete, obscure, or, you know, their work not ever known, recognized, not leaving their legacy? That's a great question. That is a great question. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about this lately. And in the context of book two, for me. Sure. Um, I'm intimidated by it because now I have admitted to myself how autobiographical my first book is. And it's like albums. The first record you ever make, like my first solo album, I made it when I was 29. And it was kind of like a greatest hits album of the last 29 years. It's your first record. It is only the good shit. Your second record, two years later, is only the greatest hits of the last two years. How could it ever measure to the greatest hits of 29 years. It can't. Right. And but and I think about that for book two, right? It's like, and I think the answer then is the only way is to continue to evolve. You can't chase yourself around. You can't chase your, your last best thing around. You have to let it go and then reset and do the next thing. You can't do more of that thing because it will never be as good. Well, you have improved though, right? Your skills have improved. Your Absolutely. understanding of, of the process has improved. Your 
understanding of how you work and how you do your best work and what routines need to be in place. 100% agree. I think in terms of the content and even like I've written a million songs and I've recorded 40 maybe in my whole life you know uh what was it the band like some 41 this is so obscure but did they did a record called all killer no filler yeah i remember (laughs) Uh, it wasn't (laughs) ironically um (laughs) but it was a sophomore album for them yeah and that's exactly my point and i think it's harder to it's harder to be really authentic when you're chasing when you're in the shadow of the first thing you did Mm -hmm. and i think i see a lot of people chasing that instead of going okay that was that chapter now here's this one because if you're just you know you're trying to do you're trying to one-up that last thing it is unlikely to your point it's possible um and I think in terms of content and like melody lines it'll take me 10 songs to get one that I'm like oh god I love this song I can't wait for people to hear it the other nine were okay and I would play them for you if you asked me to but I'm not going to feel that same way my solo album I felt that way about all the songs do you know nice. what I mean? Yeah. And I think everybody does. Like, it's not, it's not a me thing. It's like everyone, that's, you put it all in. You put every, you get all your eggs in that basket. And, you know, kind of same with the book. Like, everyone in my family is pretty much represented in that book. And so I think that's, that's the question I'll have to answer myself as well. It's like, what is this? next phase look like and, it, and I understand it's not a competition but I think we're always striving for evolution and improvement and so what does that look like for me in each of these spaces and I think music is nice because I've been away from it for a little bit working on this book and so fresh eyes is the best gift I can ever give myself is just to come at it new with that enthusiasm and the sparkly eyes that everything comes out, that comes out of me is going to be authentic because I really want to be there and I and I think creating space could be a solve you know and yeah. we'll have to see and and with this book process I'm not going to get that space right now um to be thinking about what book two looks like so I mean I, yeah it's a great question tell me when you figure it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah listeners you can you can write both of us and let us know yes please yes <laughs> how important do you feel that writing music in the arts are to society Gosh, I just think it's so incredibly important for so many reasons. Um, the first reason is is a physiological reason. It is brain development, is science. I did my, as I was telling you, my undergrad studies were in um, music therapy, which is like a, some pre med, a lot of psychology, and some guitar classes. Um, <laughs> Where did you do your Merrill Hurst? Oh, okay, which is now closed. I know. Isn't that so sad. That is, yeah. It's because they were too exclusive, I swear. I applied to their grad program. They declined me, but Cornell let me in. I'm like, come on, guys. I'm your, this is my school. <laughs> come on. Um, so anyway, I think, I think that writing was on the wall. But what a cool program. I had a kid in my practicum who could not speak. He was nonverbal, autistic, very low functioning in general. Um, we got him to sing. Wow. It's a different part of the brain. And when you only use one side or the other, first of all, you can have brain atrophies happen where you literally like you'll lose the ability to cross your own meridian like you can't. I mean, there's all kinds of like implications from a physiological standpoint that I won't completely nerd out on in this podcast, but <laughs> but Google it. OK, um, it's a thing. And, and same with art. I feel like art is such a big part of getting to know who you are and how you want to present yourself to the world. And again, it creates that space to really 
reflect on those things that I don't see kids finding in another place. Yeah. You know, like when I look at my kiddos, so every single day, Kamina, our incredible nanny, has done this like chore chart for them where they do a, you know, general chore and then they have to do a thing of practice for 15 minutes. Could be draw, could be piano, you know, anything could be outside things, but they've got to do something where they'll get that space. That's the only place I see them have that space in their life. That's really clever. It's interesting, I like though. That. She's yeah. she's amazing. I wouldn't have thought of that. She's wonderful with kids. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the most important piece is like how the road to self-discovery will be uh, so much longer for them, um, for, for folks that grow up without any kind of art or outlet for art in their life. That's why I say, I don't, you don't have to be good at creating. You just got to let it out, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the brain development piece, but I also think the cultural identity piece is so important when you look across, you know, diverse cultures, especially in America, where we see ourselves, you know, becoming more and more unified, you know, uh, you know, those cultural uh, nuances will go away over time without art, you know, because a lot of those stories live in music and live in pottery and live in weaving and blankets and things that, you know, if we're not continuing to teach our kids how to do those pieces of history will go away. Yeah. Should writers, musicians, and creative artists just go for it or get a stable job to do their art on the side? I have very strong opinions about this, only because I have learned myself the hard way, and it is not I did not land where I thought I would land. I thought that I would be a professional, full-time creative. I realized for myself that is an incredible oxymoron. I cannot <laughs> be professionally creative in the space where I make art. It just it comes from a different place in me, and when I have to do it, it ruins it for me. But I have this other side of me that loves career as well. I love to climb the ladder. I do get creative kicks at work. Um, it's a different part of me. So sometimes it feels a little bit Superman Clark Kent, if you will, because <laughs> it always feels like I'm telling one story or the other. I'm telling my professional story or my creative story. Nobody's ever asking for both. They even have different names. My mm -hmm. creative person is, uses my maiden name and my work lady uses my, my married name, you know. So I've created that divide unintentionally, but, but really to keep my art safe. It's got to be that outlet for me. It has to be just because I love it and just because I feel it, not because I'm supposed to or I, I think I should or there's some kind of obligation. So for me, creating can't exist without work on the side. And work gives me so much great content um, and experiences and feelings. And again, like it creates a juxtaposition in my life that leads to a lot of things to write about. So for me, there is no other way. I, I am very happy creating the balance, but I think everybody kind of has to come to that on their own. You know, you somebody asked me recently through my blog for advice on being a writer. And I thought, what an interesting thing to say. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? Because you're writing, so you are a writer. So are you asking me how I feel about doing writing as a job, being paid to write? Or are you asking me, <laughs> you know, about, uh, about using writing as a creative outlet? Because those are two really different answers, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's something that we all kind of have to figure out on our own. But I think that's the cautionary tale I can share now is that don't take for granted that you'll be able to create or that that, you know, you'll still get to have that space if it becomes your job. Because if that's your job, you still have to create balance. We're humans, right? Yeah. So if your job is creative, then what's your balance? Mm -hmm. Where do you balance it out? I don't know. Maybe you do other creative things that are that you don't show the world. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But I think, you know, for me, it is really important to, to let it be a pure creative space. I love that. 
That is very good. Is there a way that we as artists can work together, help help one another out, and maintain our own creativity and our own vision for our journey? Heck yes. Can I just advocate about this for like a month or an hour? Yeah. So we all have blind spots. And I think Theory Trick is a really good example of how we can help each other because there are things that each of us knows that maybe our peers don't, or there are things that are easy to say or things that we know that we cannot do for ourselves. You know what a good example is? Resumes. People all the time send me their resumes. Can you look at this and tell me what it is? People that professionally are paid to write resumes for other people will send me their resumes to look at because we cannot tell our own story. Yeah. You know, it's just a true fact. And so, like, the book is a good example right now. My publisher told me I should get an intern <laughs> because I'm, like, tragically unhip and I am responsible for social media and book launching. One of the interesting things about this process has been realizing how much the author has to do. The way the publisher described it to me is that their audience is booksellers my audience is the reader. So the reader's supposed to get to know me and be excited that this is coming and all these things. And that's got to come from me. Book tours, book launches, 100% artist does it. 100% the writer figures it out, puts it together. The publisher will make sure the books are there. But the writer really does the stuff. Wow. Who knew? And it's everybody. Like my girlfriend who who publishes through a much bigger publisher than mine, um, Penguin Random House, same thing. So I am really good at telling your story. But I suck at telling, like, I I'm, I don't have the, like, toot your own horn gene. And I think most creatives don't or don't right. feel comfortable using it on themselves. But I could help you do it. Like, if you make an album, I'll help you market it. I'll do your social media. I'll build you a website. But I need someone to do that for me, too. And I think it's a way we could totally help each other and support each other more than we do as a community. Yeah. That was good. Well put. <laughs> Can you talk to us about marketing a little bit? Like, what types of marketing things have you done and how have you helped artists in maybe your own projects over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think for, so, and again, I'll go always back to the human science thing as like a apology before I answer this. <laughs> <laughs> I always go there with yeah. things. But so from a marketing standpoint, you know, it takes people seven times to like adopt something to memory. And you, those seven things can be smarter almost, and you could get there with less than seven if you mix up the way in which, you know, you deliver that stuff. Is more it, senses are More involved. senses, exactly. So you, you know, if you see a name or you see something where I see a lot of creatives go wrong is they don't create the visual representation. You need a logo. Everybody needs a logo. That could be a picture of your face that you use on everything related to that. It could be your book cover art. It could be your something, but there needs to be continuity in the visual representation of your project always and be able to do that. And I think that's key. So for baby bands, we used to call them baby bands. Like I'm a brand new band and I'm super talented and have a lot of potential. I don't have any of the stuff yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe my band name sucks and, you know, we'll help them with that. We'll name your band. We'll put a press kit together for you. We'll get you some quotes so we can have some press to put in your press kit. You know, we'll help you figure out how your photo should look and all of that stuff. And I think that is such an important part of it that, that is hard again to do yourself. I'm struggling with it now. So the publisher put a bot on my Instagram to engage with people <laughs> and it's just so simple but like if you follow my Instagram my author Instagram account the first response you'll get is from the bot and I've I wrote it so it's for it's certainly me but it's like hi you know thanks so much for following I'm so excited to share this journey with you I and mean, it's very from the heart but then there's a rule that if someone replies to the bot I have to reply to them otherwise Instagram catches on that there's a bot on there and will shut you down so like there's that to me is my favorite part. I love interacting with the people that are interested in this journey and answering their questions and helping them, you know, if they're trying to get where I'm going and it's really fun. But 
but it takes a lot of time. Yes. You know, I do spend a lot of time now talking to these folks and I have only about like 3,200 followers or something so far. So it's not a huge group of people. So I, I think about that too. It's like, how do I keep it small enough where I can have individual relationships with the reader? and scale it. I don't know the answer to that. So you know, I think it would be great to have, you know, some some further help and some further support. But I think that the authenticity piece, just like anything, is so key to whether or not something's going to resonate with whoever's on the other side of it. So I just think, you know, it's got to be you. It's got to be real. You're not going to be for everybody. And that's how you want it. That's okay. Yeah. You know, how many singers, you know, do you love that someone else hates? Like, that's okay. You know, and I think that's part of it, too, is we'll get in our own way because we think everyone's got to like it. And and that can be really prohibitive, too. You know, marketing in the way that feels authentic to you. And that way, if people don't want it, at least, you know, they don't want it for the right reasons. Not because of that you misrepresent. It. And then you're not marketing to the wrong audience. Either, yeah. So that's. Yeah. So I think, you know, as easy as like picking up a book on the psychology of marketing, mm-hmm. if, if that's not something that you've explored or thought through, will be very enlightening and, and just sort of give you that foundational building blocks to think about marketing to work smarter, not harder, I guess. Yes. And those little quick hits like, okay, easy, make a little visual thing or get someone that's good at that to do, you know, okay, make sure it's on everything. Got it. Like someone said to me the other day, cause my hair looks a certain way in the picture that is now going to be my author picture on the book and it's uh-huh. on the website and it's on the Instagram and everything. And someone's like, you can't have different hair when you go out on the road. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, crap. Like I didn't think of that, but you're right. I can't show up not looking like that since I'm the logo, right? Like, oh yeah. Hmm. I mean, those are the kind of things that I think could be really impactful. Like if people have seen your picture online and they see you, they know it's you. Right. Duh. Why wouldn't I think of that? You know, it's those little things that I think are are really the most impactful. It's not about the money you spend, you know. And I also think, too, now that I'm seeing it's it's okay to ask for help and it's not. And that's something else I'm not very good at. And so I had this idea of like, okay, well, I can't do a a book launch everywhere, you know. And one of my mottos at work is. Okay, first of all, what is the work that only I can do? And then what is the work that only I can do right now? And if this work is not those things, what can I delegate or automate? <laughs> those are the things I talk about. So I've been thinking about that in relation to marketing and, and this book launch is, you know, okay, there's some things here that are necessary that are not strengths of mine. So what can I automate or delegate? And I could automate the if first interaction on Instagram. That's been great. And then, and I wondered if I could delegate some of the book launch stuff. So I had this idea of like, what if there's like a book launch in a box and I send it to you, you're really passionate about this book and you want to be a part of this launch and have like this moment and you're an avid reader and you have a book club and you got your 15 friends and they want to do this book launch together. So I send you a box and it has 15 books and it's got some swag and we set a time and you FaceTime me in and I talk to everyone, do a reading or something like how can we, you know, just trying to get creative about how I could keep it one-on-one and personal at scale. Yeah, that's huge. I don't know. I don't know if anybody will take me up on it, but I've just been kind of brainstorming on those kinds of things, too, and and reminding myself over and over it's okay to ask for help and to let people who want to be a part of it be a part of it. Yeah. Well, I hope that works. Me, too. Yeah. (laughs) Me, (laughs) too. It's very clever. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that kind of you know scenario but that's uh, that's perfect I don't know if that's gonna like hit the nail on the head but I'm even thinking too like another example this is an interesting story actually when I was writing the book I 
realized that she was going to, my main character, her name is Nova Daniels. Nova was going to travel across the country and there's certain elements of timing and things that I had to work out. And so I was in the beginning, super like dependent on Google maps (laughs) and I would Google map. Okay. If it's going to take eight hours to drive this, but if you're on a bus, does that take longer? Let me look at the Greyhound schedule, you know, really kind of mapping it out. And I realized that this little nugget in Connecticut was like the perfect stopping point because you could get to New York city on a train, which you need to do. She'd need to do. And so I Google mapped this little town and it's called Stonington. But but again, on the east side of Stonington, this little jetty out into the water is called Stonington Borough. It's like the little nugget of town on the side of the town. And it was perfect, picture perfect. I can imagine it being magical. I could believe that magic exists in Stonington Borough. And so I realized, okay, I've got this little bit of nugget of time I can take off work. My best friend's willing to go with me. We're going to like Thelma and Louise this trip. But I had like no money because art is expensive. (laughs) Until it's making money, it's just costing money. So you've got to have a day job, okay, to support your art. (laughs) But I think, um, so then I found this Airbnb, went on Airbnb, was looking for cheap places to stay. And there was this place that was like so perfect. It was in the right location. It was something where I could like wake up in the morning and walk out and be Nova. You know, I could I could literally walk a mile in Nova's shoes and I needed that like in a deep way. (laughs) And so I wrote this letter to the host. And I said, you know, her name's Carolyn. Dear Carolyn, you know, uh, please don't think I'm a crazy person, but I am a writer. I have a young set of twins at home and like I can't afford to do this trip, but like I'm writing this book and I got to stay in your place. Is there any way you could find it in your heart to give me a discount, make it affordable? And in exchange, I will name a character after you. And she said, okay. And she made it affordable for me. And we stayed there and it was everything I needed it to be and more. And I got to tell you, it was like one of the most exciting moments of my life (laughs) to be able to call Carolyn and tell her this thing's getting published. Nice. Because I think I knew going in, I'm like, it's only a valuable thing if anybody ever sees it, that you get this character named after you. But it became so much more than that. There's an antique shop that she has below her space that made it into the book. Like the so much about that experience got woven into the story. And I think that's, you know, the story has a life of its own because of some of those little stops along the way. Yeah. I think, again, that's why I think about book two. I'm like, how do you, how do you how recreate do you top that? these special moments? Yeah, because you really, truly brought the character to life. It's a handicap of mine, honestly. Like, I am a visual person. I just, and that's really the only way I'm going to retain something or, or be impacted by something. And I know that like I'll handwrite things just so I see it because it'll stay. It's interesting. So I had to do it that way. And again, if I think about her going international, I might not be able to do, you know, so, so I'm thinking about there's these great people. So then Carolyn, and I reached out to her to tell her this, um, she sent me a note a few days later. I didn't know that she'd even seen my first, uh, I sent her an email first because I didn't have her phone number. I said, oh my gosh, this is happening. You know, let's talk. And then she wrote me a few days later and said, hey, got your email. Sorry, I didn't respond. Can you call me? It was like 11 o'clock at night, her time. And I called her. I was like, hi, lady I've only met once, (laughs) you know, (laughs) years ago. Nice to talk to you. She's like, hey, so there's this bookshop in Mystic that wants to host you. And then there's this writer in residence program here in Stonington that would like to have you as a, and I'm like, okay, so for these last three days, Carolyn's been boots on the ground, PR peddling this book because she's, she feels connected to it. She's excited about it. She wants to participate in it. Wow. And I thought, and I could hear it in her voice. Like this was like giving her life right now. <laughs> and I'm like, who am I to take that away? And I just said, well, thank you. You know, I'd be happy to talk to either of those, you know. 
people. And that's what kind of got me thinking about, huh, like who else wants to be a part of this art and moment? And, and how do I even make more people know about it so they could raise their hand? I don't know the answer to that either, but it's the kind of stuff I'm thinking. And, and back to your question about how can we help each other as artists, I just think it'd be cool to have like a Facebook group, you know, equivalent of a take a penny, leave a penny jar. Uh-huh. It's just like for musicians that are like, oh, I could really use somebody to like work the merch booth at my show this weekend. I'll give you a ticket if you can come. Hey, I would love to have someone help me with my book launch. Does anybody have a contact at Powell's? Yeah. You know, just like something like that where we could ask for help from each other. Well, that is awesome. I love that. I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, sure you did. Sure. <laughs> it's your story. It's not my story. Are there any questions I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't think so. Okay. I feel like we've covered my whole life at this point. (laughs) It's been fun to think through some of this stuff. And so thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm excited to talk to Eric, your husband, at some point in time soon. Yeah. Who is an incredible musician. Such an incredible musician. And will tell you all day long that he's not. So that'll be fun. (laughs) Don't listen to him. (laughs) I can't wait. We know better. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time. And can you tell folks where they can find you, learn about your book online? And uh, I will put links in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, my website is jen-dashney.com, J-E-N-N-D-A-S-H-N-E-Y, for all things book. Okay. And the Instagram and Twitter are jen-dashney-official, so same spelling. and then for music, most things live at theheritage.co, C-O. All things band, lots of music there, and lots of links back to other places on the web. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. com. <laughs>